You know, sometimes as a communicator, someone who speaks in front of people on the reg, there are those moments that just kind of terrify you a little bit. I was doing a wedding for a close family friend of mine about three and a half years ago, and, and to be fair, it's more than just a family friend, it's actually a family friend family, because this was the wedding of Julie's cousin, daughter, Ed Young and Lisa Young, their daughter, Laura, was getting married, and she's married now to Sam Kelly. And the reason that this was not a typical wedding for me was because of the number of other pastors and ministers who were in attendance at this wedding. You had Laurie's dad, you had Laurie's brother, you had Laurie's grandfather, two uncles, other family members on, that, on the bride's side of the family. On the groom's side, Sam comes from a pastor's family. I'll never forget, right before the wedding, Ben Young walked up to me and he said, Mac, I am so glad I'm not you right now. I thought, Ben, thanks, man. I really, really appreciate that. Because I was already a little amped up. <clears throat> but I did a little bit of research before this wedding because I was thinking about Sam and Laurie coming together as husband and wife on this night down in Florida these years ago. And I thought about the legacy that they each brought to the table, both of them coming from committed Christian homes, both of them coming from families who are committed to the bride of Christ, to the ministry of the church, the body of Christ, and what an incredible opportunity they had and have in front of them as husbands and wife. And so as I started thinking about this, I thought about the word legacy, and I actually went and started looking it up, and I learned something really profound about legacy. When we think about legacy, most of the time, we think about something that is handed down from generation to generation. It may be an inheritance. It may be family traditions. It may be family values that are deliberately and intentionally communicated from one generation to the next. But in reality, the concept of legacy is so much more profound than even these family hand-me-downs that I think most of us think about when we think about a legacy. As a matter of fact, the word legacy itself actually meant a group of people commissioned by a king for a specific purpose. A group of people commissioned by a king for a specific purpose. And it struck me in that moment that not only did this apply to Sam and Laurie, his husband and wife, obviously, but this is also the picture of the body of Christ. This is what we are, this is who we are as followers of Christ, that we are the legacy of Jesus. What I mean by that is, if Easter is true, and by the way, Easter is true. Tell your neighbor right now like you mean it, Easter is true. If Easter is in fact true, then the body of Christ, the church, is this, this commissioned group of people sent out by the king for a specific purpose. The word legacy comes from the old Latin word legatus, which is someone deputized or an ambassador sent out from the king. This is who the church is. This is what we are to be all about. And so it follows that on the heels of Easter last weekend, we would begin this series, this teaching series, Legacy, the book of Acts. Over the next few weeks, we're going to take a very methodical step-by-step -step look 
at the book of Acts when we see the church birthed. We see the church commissioned by Christ. And, and it's in the book of Acts in the New Testament, the fifth book of the New Testament. You've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, where the Bible records our roots and it, it directs our boots on the ground to be the bride of Christ. What is it that Jesus intended? What is it that he meant when he left us here on the earth to be the hands and feet and voice of God in a world that is living and dying for the transformative truth and grace and love of God? And that's what we're going to be about over the next few weeks. If you've got your Bibles, I want you to look in Acts. We're going to start at the very beginning, Acts chapter 1. It's interesting if you look at the entire book of Acts, Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 28, it begins and it ends talking about kingdom. I love the, the verse that Derek used earlier in our service where he's talked about Matthew chapter 6. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then all the other things that we worry about, stress about, get anxious about, all those things will be taken care of. But seek first the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is really the theme of the book of Acts from beginning to end. And it starts because Jesus' closest disciples still don't get it. Turn to your other neighbor, your second choice right now, and tell him it's okay if you don't get it. Now, it's okay if you don't get it right now. Hopefully by the end of the service, you'll get it. But in Acts chapter 1, Jesus is 40 days removed from his resurrection. He's appeared to over 500 eyewitnesses. He's walking down the road, talking with the disciples, leading them, teaching them, about to return to heaven. And here's how the Bible records this. Acts chapter 1, verse 6. We're going to read through verse 9. So... When the apostles were with Jesus, they kept asking him, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom? But he replied, the Father alone has the authority to set those dates and times, and they are not for you to know. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. After saying this, he was taken up into a cloud while they were watching, and they could no longer see him. This is Jesus' ascension, his return to heaven, the end of his earthly ministry. But there is so much packed into this, this statement, into this final final word to his apostles. I love, I, I love the disciples. I love the disciples because they're just so human. If I start to ever get down on myself, if I ever start to kind of think, I don't know if God will ever do anything through me or with me or in me, I can always go to the apostles. The apostles are a great reminder that God will hit a straight lick with a crooked stick. Somebody help me preach. And they say, Jesus is now the time. We've seen you resurrected from the dead. We, we've seen you heal people. We've seen you make the blind see and the lame walk. Is now the time to restore our kingdom? And Jesus just, as a loving teacher, just kind of shakes his head and he goes, you, you still don't get it. 
This is not about your kingdom. This is not about the return of Israel as you remembered, as you were taught about it. Remember, the kingdom of Israel in the Old Testament was ascendant. The kingdom of Israel was God's chosen people living in the promised land, living in the, the shalom and the, the flourishing and, and just the incredible completeness that God had created them for, that he had called them to. But they experienced incredible brokenness because of their unfaithfulness. They were they were exiled. They were enslaved. And even now, during Jesus' earthly ministry, the nation of Israel was living under the thumb of Roman occupation and subjection. And they kept thinking that, that the kingdom of God, here is the Son of God, the promised one, the Messiah, is going to restore Israel to its prominence. And Jesus goes, no. It's not about that kind of a kingdom. Jesus says, as a matter of fact, this turf taking that I'm assigning to you is completely different from anything that you have ever seen or thought of or heard of before. We know that from elsewhere in the Bible that Jesus commanded them to go back to Jerusalem and to there wait for the Holy Spirit, to just go back and wait on the Holy Spirit to come upon them. And not until they received the gift of the Holy Spirit were they to go out and grow the kingdom, expand the kingdom of God. Can you imagine? I mean, think about being told you're in charge now. I'm gonna return to heaven, but I need you to just wait. I wonder this weekend if, if there's somebody here or maybe watching online and, and you're just kind of in a, you're kind of in a waiting period. You're kind of in a, in a holding pattern. Can I just encourage you that, that sometimes you can be in a waiting place and you are exactly where God wants you to be. You are exactly in the center of God's will and desire for your life. Let me remind you of Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah 40 says, those who wait on the Lord, they will mount up with wings as eagles. They will renew their strength. Sometimes Sometimes you just gotta kinda, you just gotta wait. You just gotta hang on. And I would encourage you with that today. Remember, this is what Jesus is commanding the disciples here. He says, just, just go back to Jerusalem and just wait. But look at that, what did, what did he say to him? He goes, you will receive power. You will receive power. Now, turn back to your first neighbor and tell that person, you will receive power. That was horrible. That was, I mean, I love you too much to lie to you. That, I mean, that, let me tell you what I heard from here, okay? This is just, just us talking. You will receive power. Now turn, turn to that same person again and say it like, like you believe Jesus' words. Say it like you mean it. You will receive power. But there it is. Now, see, don't, now you believe that. I love this phrase, you will receive power. In the original Greek that the New Testament was written in, the word here is you will receive dunamis. Say dunamis. dunamis. It's the same word that gives us the word dynamite. Dynamite. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Not before, but when the Holy Spirit comes on you. This is one of the great lies of humanism, that you have the power within you. 
Absent the Holy Spirit of God, no, you don't. You turn to your neighbor and say, you don't have it. Nobody has it in and of ourselves. It has to be given to us by God. But man, once it is given to us, once we do get out of the way, once we, once we allow that power to permeate our souls and our lives and our relationships and our work, man, at that point, buckle up. That's when it starts to get fun. When you receive the Holy Spirit. Now, this is very, very important theologically. They had not received the Holy Spirit yet, not because they hadn't passed a test or because they hadn't healed enough people or anything like that. They hadn't received the Holy Spirit yet because Jesus was still with them. They still had the physical presence of God with them. They didn't need the presence of the Holy Spirit in the same way. But Jesus knew once he ascended and returned back to heaven at that point, then we would need the presence of the helper, the counselor, the Holy Spirit of God. And so it was after he ascended back to heaven, after his earthly ministry was done, that he gave the church this power, this, this Holy Spirit presence, this indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Look at Acts chapter two. I wanna just kind of show you how the narrative progresses here. We're gonna hit this very quickly. But Acts chapter two, verses one through four. Now on the day of Pentecost, on the day of Pentecost, all the believers were meeting together in one place. Now, we know that this was about 120 people were gathered together in one room. Suddenly, there was a sound from heaven like the roaring of a mighty windstorm and it filled the house where they were sitting. Then what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them. And everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. So Jesus says, just wait, just wait. And in that waiting time, when he gave the Holy Spirit, Jesus revolutionized the concept of kingdom. Jesus revolutionized the concept of kingdom. In this moment, Jesus stands on its head the disciples' understanding of what it means to be a part of the kingdom. And as they were waiting, the Holy Spirit is given to them. Like it's this rushing wind, and what the Bible says looked like tongues of fire each head as they received the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, I know for us in, in 21st century rational America, it's kind of hard to get our minds around this, but this is what happened. The Holy Spirit is not irrational. The, the miraculous workings of God are not irrational. They are supra-rational. They are above reason and logic. They are beyond reason and logic. I'll give you an example. Love. Love. Does anybody here love somebody? Just anybody, if you love somebody, raise your hand. Hopefully, I can't see everybody, but hopefully your hands are up. You can't explain love logically. You can't. 
Love is illogical. It is supra-rational. Now, hopefully it is rooted in fact. It is, it is rooted in reality. But it is beyond a scientific equation. You, you can't explain fully real, active, sacrificial, unconditional love. That is beyond reason, but it is absolutely real. I would suggest to you the same thing happens whenever we see the miraculous occur, whenever we see God move in ways that only God can move. It doesn't mean that the laws of science are invalid, and it doesn't mean that we're making something up in our minds. It means that God, who created all of those natural laws, is perfectly at liberty and has the power to transcend those natural laws which he has put into effect. That's what happens here. There's this supernatural moment, this, this rushing of wind where the Holy Spirit is given to the believers in this upper room there in Jerusalem and the city of Jerusalem hears what's going on. People start to rush and to come around and go, well, I, I heard that noise, what was going on? And there's something going on and they, wait a minute, these, these simple fishermen, these these believers, these followers of Jesus of Nazareth are speaking in languages that they've never been to school to learn. They, they, were, they were common Jews of the day. They would have spoken Aramaic, maybe some Hebrew, but here people from other parts of the world are hearing their language being spoken in a miraculous way. And in this miraculous way, they begin to draw people in and people are like, wait, what, what is going on? And as you might imagine, there were some people there who thought they were just drunk. They said, well, these people have lost their, they got into the communion wine a little early today. And this is what drew the apostle Peter out. It was Peter who stepped up and said, no, 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 don't be mistaken. We're not drunk. Nine o'clock in the morning is too early for that. He said, what you are witnessing here is a miracle of God. What you are witnessing here is the birth of the church. What you're witnessing here is supernatural in its origins because of what Jesus Christ has done for us, because Easter was real. And, and Peter begins to proclaim the gospel openly there in Jerusalem. He stands up and just starts preaching. I want you to take just a quick second and remember who Peter is. Peter is the one who 40 days earlier denied that he even knew Jesus, denied that he was even one of Jesus' disciples. The Bible goes into such detail of the denial of Peter that it says he denied him with an oath. Peter used profanity to deny that he ever knew Christ. But after Pentecost, after Pentecost, he uses the proclamation of the gospel and the good news of Christ to let people know that what Jesus did was real and it matters and it matters eternally. And this is his sermon on the day of Pentecost. Now Pentecost was a harvest festival commanded by God in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, God had said seven weeks after Passover, 49 days, 50 days, that's where you get the word Pentecost, 50. 50 days after Passover, you were to celebrate this harvest time. And so Pentecost was a regular festival that was being celebrated there in Jerusalem 
on this day when they received the Holy Spirit and when Peter began to preach and proclaim the word. Look at what it says in verse 38. Acts 2, verse 38, and then I'm gonna skip down to verse 41. Peter replied, each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Verse 41, those who believed what Peter said were baptized and added to the church that day about 3,000 in all. Tell your neighbor, that's a good day. 3,000 people. They started the day with 120. They ended the day with 3,000. And part of what we're going to see throughout the book of Acts is how they managed all of the tensions created by this explosive growth. There were, there were problems that the church in Jerusalem and elsewhere began to experience as they expanded. But man, just for a moment, let's just, let's just kind of camp out in that for a second. Here, Peter, the one who denied Jesus with profanity, is now declaring him, proclaiming the gospel. And he says, this is what you have to do. You have to repent of your sins, each of you. It's not enough that you were born a Jew. It's not enough that you were born into a family that worshiped God. You have to decide what you will do with Easter. Nothing has changed from that in 2,000 years. You see, Jesus died on the cross because God so loved the world, but he loves the world one life at a time. He loves the world so much that he commissioned his son to go to the cross in your place and in my place personally by name so that we have to decide what we will do with that. Some of you, well, I mean, I, I grew up going to church. My mom and dad dragged us all the time. <laughs> that's, that's maybe good, maybe not. I don't know what your story is. But you have to choose. You have to decide. I had to decide. What would I do with Jesus? What do you do with Jesus? You see, Peter is explaining here that those who acknowledge the king are the kingdom. Those who acknowledge the king, that Christ is the king of kings and the Lord of lords, that is the kingdom. The kingdom is made up of people, people who acknowledge his sovereignty, his authority, his grace, his truth, and choose to follow it. This is what you do. This is how you move the kingdom forward. You tell other people about it. And a lot of times we tell people about Christ just by the way we live our lives. But at some point, there has to be a sharing. There, you, you have to explain it. What if I came to you and said, listen, there's this restaurant that Julie and I went to that is unbelievable. It's in downtown Austin. It is the best food I have ever eaten. I want you to go taste this food. You would say, Mac, what's the name of it? It's so good. It's, it's just so, so good. 
Where is it? It's, so, it's the food. It's so good. I mean, oh. At some point, if I don't tell you where the restaurant is, where you can get this amazing meal, I'm not being a very good friend to you. At some point, every follower of Christ ought to get to tell somebody what Jesus has done in our lives. It's not something only reserved for the pastor. It's not something only reserved for those people who have taken the class or are really bold in personality. Every follower of Christ needs to be able to explain what, what it means when the Bible says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Let, let me tell you what Christ has done in my life. Let, let, me, let me share with you the difference that he's made. Assuming he's making a difference. Assuming our lives are different than the world's. Remember, we are, we are called out. We're, we're called out to be ambassadors for Christ. Every follower of Christ is an ambassador. Every follower. So that means that, that we have a job to do. We have work to do. Look at what the Bible says, Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 47. All the believers, say all. All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, communion, and to prayer. A deep sense of awe came over them all, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders, and all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. Time out. This is not a biblical mandate for socialism. Don't, I've heard people, well, they were socialists. No, they weren't. Socialism is government mandated. This is spirit led. This is people choosing willingly giving of their resources to help other people. So just put that little notion aside. They worshiped together at the temple each day. They met in homes for the Lord's Supper. They shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. The early church oriented their lives around the kingdom of God. They oriented their lives around the purposes of God. They understood that this kingdom of God thing means life or death. That they had the message of life and they were called to live it out. Here's what's going on. The community of Christ is called out, commissioned and consecrated for his glory and our good. The building of his kingdom. 
We are called out. That means that you're called by name. When you come to a relationship with Christ, you have been called by God and you've answered the call. If you're a, if you're a Christian, truly you've committed your life to Christ, then that means by definition you answered the call. Someone at some point in your life issued the call. Somebody let you know what it means to be a Christian. Somebody told you the good news of Jesus and you responded to that. When you responded to that, you answered the call. And by virtue of the fact that you answered the call, you are now commissioned by the king himself to build the kingdom, to be about kingdom business, to orient every part of your life around the purposes of God. So, so my marriage to Julie, it's, it's cool as far as it goes, but ultimately, this is, this is secondary. The ultimate purpose of my marriage is to point people to Christ. Because I'm gonna love Julie the way Christ loves the church. She's gonna love me the way the church loves Christ. As parents, we're not called to raise kids who just go along to get along. We're called to raise a generation of leaders and not followers. We're called to rear up our children and to teach them the ways and the whys of God. To tell them why this matters, why this works best for them. When we go to work, our work is infused with the power, the dunamis, and the purposes of God Almighty. And so our work looks different. We handle victories different, we handle defeats differently. Our lives look different because we're called out, we're commissioned, but that word consecrated, consecrated, to be consecrated means that you are set apart for holy purposes. The church is set apart for holiness, for holy purposes, to glorify God and in glorifying him to experience all of the goodness of God. You see, it's only, only through the Holy Spirit that we experience the wholeness of community and maintain the individuality that God created with us, within us. See, we live in this tension between what's me, mine, and my, and your, and, and then how do we function together? But the Holy Spirit says, no, no, no. It's when you seek first the kingdom of God, it all comes together. When you seek first the purposes, the kingdom, the power of God, that's when we see the value of community. Man, we've had a front row seat for the, the critical nature of community just in the last year. Remember last year when, when COVID shut everything down and we went, to, we went into our houses? Remember that? Can we go outside? Can we go outside? And we were isolated. Man, we, we know firsthand nobody gets better in isolation. Nobody. Now, solitude is fine and necessary sometimes, but isolation is never healthy. We are wired 
for relationship, for community, for connectedness. And it's the Holy Spirit that that brings our need for personal fulfillment together with our need for community involvement and makes it all work. This is the church. This is, this is the legacy of Christ that we're commanded to carry. We're commissioned to communicate. I want to ask you to bow your heads for just a moment. And in this moment, I want to pray for all of us as a church family. Whether you're in the room or you're online, I want to pray over our week ahead that we will be kingdom-minded in everything that we do. Dear Heavenly Father, in this moment, we're overwhelmed by your goodness to us. God, in in the gift that you have given us of your kingdom, this community that we call the church. And Father, I pray for each and every one of us as followers of Christ this week that we would walk, that we would talk, that we would pray, that we would live in the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would infuse every step with purpose and power and use us for your purposes. Together, Lord, we pray this prayer in the name of Jesus, the one who makes it all possible. If you would, I wanna ask you just to remain with your heads bowed for another moment. And I just wanna give you the opportunity, if you have never responded to the call of Christ, if you've never done what Peter talks about there at Pentecost and repented of your sins, that means you do a 180, an about face, and turn toward Christ, follow Christ personally and definitively. We wanna give you the opportunity to do that right now just to pray where you're you're sitting, maybe watching online, just silently answer that call by praying something like this from your heart to God's. Just silently say this, just, Jesus, I need you. I need you and I confess my sin to you. Holding none of it back, I lay it all at the foot of the cross where you took it on yourself. And Jesus, in this moment, in dropping my sin, I wanna pick up your grace and your forgiveness and your truth and follow you from this moment forward with everything that I have. And so I commit my life to you. And I believe that you rose from the dead, that Easter is in fact true. 
And in my heart, I confess you as my Lord, the leader, the director of my life. Lord, I pray this prayer in your name. As our heads are bowed for just another moment, a sacred moment, I wanna ask you, if that was your prayer, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, would you just raise your hand? If that was your prayer, just raise your hand and hold it up high over your head for a moment. Your hand in the air is just a statement physically of the commitment spiritually that you just made. Your response to that grace initiative, the call of Christ on your life. In just a minute, as a church, we want to give you the opportunity. We want you to know that we want to help with what comes next because this is just the beginning for you. And in just a second, we'll let you know kind of how that happens. But for right now, just know that we celebrate that with you. We honor that moment in your life. And as you put your hands down, we're going to put our hands together and tell you, welcome home. Welcome home. Welcome home.